Pace Line is a production of The Cycling Independent with support from our generous subscribers and from Shimano North America. From the Cycling Independent, this is The Paceline, the podcast on two wheels. Today, we have a Paceline special interview with my friend Phil Cavell, who is one of the principals at CycleFit in London, as well as the author of the book The Midlife Cyclist, which we reviewed on the site last year. Paceline listeners might remember that you and I, Phil, we spoke about the book on this show as well. Um, so today we're just having a follow-up conversation about how midlife cyclists has changed your work and maybe led you on to some new ideas. Okay. That sounds fine. <laughs> hello, hello, John from London. Hello. hello. And thanks for giving up some of your Friday evening for this. No, it's fine. It's good, honestly. All right. So for people who are just catching up to all this, quickly, tell us what CycleFit is. And maybe also explain some of the work you do alongside CycleFit as far as bike fitting, symposia, information series. There's some pro team fitting, um, because I think that the whole picture will clue folks into the breadth of your work. And I know from I mean, we've known each other for some years. I know you as a friend to be quite modest, uh, but you're involved in an awful lot of cutting-edge bike-fitting physiology and psychology, aren't you? Yes. So CycleFit started quite a long time ago, um, uh, maybe 23, 24 years ago now, with my co-director, Julian Wall, who you know very well and is a friend of yours. And um, we started a long time ago. We were um, very interested in bike-fitting, and we trained with uh, Ben Sarotta and the Fit School and went through that whole programme we um, we trained one-on-one with Paul Swift, who's a very good friend of ours. And we also became very interested. Uh, our, I guess our speciality was the foot. And we trained with our podiatrist, Mick Habgood, who we've been working with for maybe 15 or 16 years now. Um, and so we just keep trying to move forward and develop the whole fit methodology and philosophy um and we don't we don't don't use any other methodology other than our own um uh, which is cycle fit but of course we you know we draw influences where where and when we can um and you mentioned the symposium so we we run occasionally run this thing called ics or the international cycle fit symposium haven't done one for a while um one is due now though uh, and there we gather the great and the good from around the world in sports psychology and physiology and bike fitting a lot of folk come from America, a lot of folk come from Europe. We all gather in one place, Manchester, London. Um, and um, we sort of geek out for four or five days. Um, and uh, it, the, I mean, it's, we have a very eminent kind of alumni from that series. The symposium kicked off in 2012 with Keith Bontrager doing the very first ever talk, which is fantastic. And then over over the years, so many people have spoken. Ben Sarotta, Phil Burt, um, the author of The um, Chimp Paradox, uh, Dr. Steve Peters, 
Um, so yeah, it's 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 been absolutely brilliant. Um, I'm rambling a bit now, John, and there was something else you asked as well, wasn't there? Well, I'm just trying to get a picture of all of the sort of cha- uh, channels that you work within, because there's cycle fit where you can go and have a bike fit. That's yeah. sort of the the root of it. But then you're unlike a lot of um, bike fitters or bike fit technology or technologists in schools. Uh, many of them sort of become siloed, right? Like they decide it's their way and they're going to stay within that and they don't share the development much. But you and uh, Jules have taken a a really different approach where you're open to everything all the time. Yeah, I I think that's fair to say. We took a step, I think, early on, a decision to be chefs that share their recipes. I think that's fair to say. Um, And I think we still do that. We still like to collaborate with people and we really enjoy that. Um, and yeah, I, I, you know, so Phil Burt, for example, is, is, is a good friend of ours and we, you know, we chat about stuff and we brainstorm, brainstorm stuff. So I think that's fair to say, uh, and then bike fitting, you know, relatively still in its infancy, of course. So, you know, it, it, beho- it's behoven upon us all to really sort of share and try and develop the thing and move it forward. Um, right. and so Along those lines, you know, you can go to Cycle Fit and get a, a, a fitting done, but you also work with uh, a lot of world-class clients, both through Pro Team and also, do you, is there a Team GB connection or just overlap with Pro? There is, there's no formal Team GB connection, but there is a lot of overlap. Um, so... At the moment, we're working um, with uh, TM, TMF Education Post, um, and Jules has just come back from the t- the camp in Girona where he fitted both the men's and the women's team all on his own in a week. Bless him. And he took with him <laughs> for moral support Mick, ha- Mick Hapgood, our podiatrist. And they tend to work now as a kind of pro, as a duo, those two. Um Simply because Jules really enjoys that work, working with professional cyclists. Um, it's not something, John, I particularly enjoy. I do it now and again, and I enjoy it and smile and get on with it. But it's something which Jules really, really liked, and it's something I find a little bit stressful, if I'm honest with you. don't think I've ever said that before. Um, so I, it's not that I avoid it. Yeah, do you know what? I avoid it. <laughs> there you go. It's out now, John. I can't bring it back. It's out. There uh, it is. There I it is. Kind I'm of glad avo- we've done this together. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I kind of avoid it, and Jules kind of loves it. So I support him in that. Uh, he'll often show me something or a clip or a video, and we'll talk about it, and I'm very happy to do that, very comfortable to do that. But actually being in a room under that kind of pressure in a group team environment, I find, do I find it stressful? I don't know. It's not. It's not stress as in I'm standing there anxious. It's just I'm not as comfortable in that environment as he is, you know. Um, so, it, you know, it, he really enjoys it and it's great for us. It really drives us all forward. And he's kind of complimenting Mick because they, they've worked together for so long that they can really complement each other. And Mick will do the rider's orthotics and stabilise the foot and then Jules will take it from ankle up, it's all mine, you know. So... Yeah, they work together as a great team, those two. Yeah, I'm, I, I think I'm, I'm interested in it. I, I mean, obviously, uh, when you start to 
mention the names of the riders you, you cycle fit has worked with it lends instant credibility my interest in it is more in the sense of the breadth of sorts of riders you get to work with uh and how all of that information sort of um informs both cycle fit but also your your work your your book your writing i should say because there's more than one book but we'll get we'll get onto that in a minute yeah so yeah we don't generally mention the riders that we work with um we sort of have a policy of trying to i don't know why we just always have always kept that quiet not many riders say to us you can't mention it but Often we're working with a rider and they're attached to another team and we don't know what how sensitive that that is, so we just don't talk about it. But it's probably fair to say who haven't we worked with and who have we. Do you know what I mean? It's like it's for Jules, it's at that level, really. Yeah. Um, but we just he he doesn't talk about it. I don't talk about it. But ever uh, uh, it's quite strange that sometimes that sometimes at cycle fit somebody will be at the counter and they're you know they're paying for something and then right behind them is somebody who's just won a tour stage. And then they turn around and it's like, fuck. <laughs> it's great. It's always lovely. It's fantastic. And generally, you know what pro cyclists like? They're pretty modest people. They're just, just blending in really, aren't they? Mm. Uh, but that's the only time it comes out, John, really. Yeah, other than yeah. that, they, they sit there, drink the same coffee, sit in the same chairs, and they come in and out with their bikes. And, you know, it's they don't really get any special treatment, really. Well, they do. Everyone gets the same special treatment is what I'm trying to say, I suppose. That's and, that's nice, and we love it. We love it when they're sitting there. Someone sitting there who's just won a world championship, and they're sitting next to somebody who's you know just starting out on their cycling journey, and they're chatting, and they don't know who each other are. Really, it's fantastic. That is nice. <laughs> yeah, it is. I I I find as I watch uh, pro races, especially, I think even for uh, someone like me, I watch certain riders, and I think, oh my goodness, your fit is. I don't know what. How you arrived, is that even your bike? And I always yeah. think, well, gosh, I'd love to watch this with Phil. Uh, Jules. And just... Jules is better than me at that. He's hilarious. He could do a, He does skits on this. I mean, he puts them on Instagram, John. He's brilliant at this. I mean, you know, th- yeah. he and I work differently. He, 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 you know, Jules has got a very visual head. He's a great artist. He's a great technical drawer. He, he, he comes at this from that visual perspective. I don't come at it like that. I come at it from reading the notes, reading the history, triangulating different points of information. I mean, he's packed up and gone home by that time. Do you know what I mean? And, and maybe that's why I don't like working at that level, because uh, I don't see it fast enough. I don't see it the way he sees oh, it. Right. So, when, so when he's watching a pro rider, and sometimes we upload these skits of him doing that on, it, it's hilarious because he sees it all immediately. And it's, you know, it's, it's both enlightening and funny. Uh, it's, yes. I, don't, I can't see that. Hmm. Well, um, let, let's pivot to the book. I, I, I read the book. I reviewed it. We talked about it before. And I said about Midlife Cyclist uh, that it's one of the few cycling books that actually changed the way I approach riding. Um, the book is loaded with good science, but even just on a macro level, the idea that most of us who are serious about riding bikes are working too hard for our physiological realities that helped me sort of alter my my riding and it's genuinely led me to enjoy it more what are what have people said to you about about the book yeah 
similarly, a lot of people have been very kind about the book, John, which was a surprise to me. Um, and um, there's some stuff which is a bit controversial in the book. But generally speaking, I think people have taken that message that essentially, if you look at our evolutionary programming, what we've evolved to do, we've evolved to be to be sustainable athletes, athletes who can endure uh, and good at endurance. Um, and, you know, that's the system that we should be training. And as we get older, we should be doubling down on that. Uh, and this is backed up by the evidence, and Dr. John Baker is quoted a lot in the book. And this is what pro cyclists do. If you look at a pro cyclist power curves, they're entirely different to um, amateur cyclist power curves. And we see it all the time because we do lactate threshold testing uh, with John at, at CycleFit. And what you'll see is midlife athletes who just are time poor, they thrash themselves stupid. And they, what they do is they make themselves into a machine that can, that can create lactic acid. Um, so, you know, th and then what happens is they end up sitting in the office with their pulse at resting heart rate and they're producing lactic acid. So like, oh, look, look what you've done. Well done. You've made yourself into somebody who's a world professional at producing lactic acid, end up producing lactate. And that isn't how professional cyclists are. They do the absolute opposite. They spend hours and hours and hours and hours training themselves to move that point up, move that curve up. So they're mm. to make themselves efficient before they make themselves fast. Professionals make themselves efficient. And what we try and do is hack that and just make ourselves fast. And as we get older, we try and hack it more because we've got more responsibilities, kids, jobs, um, you know, all these things that we're responsible for. So we don't have a lot of time. So we just try and keep hacking. And the, the problem is we're not working on the systems that we try. We want to work on. So the parallel lines of professional and amateur are moving away. They train one way and we train another way. They, they're creating resilience and in efficiency and endurance, and we're creating lactate machines. So, <laughs> so it, you know, and the book is trying to take, that's one of the central themes of the book. It's not the only central theme, but that's one of them. It's, it's just to bring everybody back to baseline and say, okay, let's question ourselves and how we behave from first principles, me included. And, it, you know, that, that's one of the things the book was trying to do is just say like, pump the brakes a moment. Let's just call your jets and let's find out where we all are. Um, and, you know, some people were ready to hear that message. Actually, most people, to be fair. And some, some people weren't. And, and that's also fine. It, you know, it doesn't necessarily carry an inherent risk. It just carries a, a risk of lack of potential being realised, if you like. Yeah, I mean, I, it, it spoke to me in the sense of, well, I mean, here I am, I'm 52 and, um, I'm not what I used to be. And I spend too much time wondering if I'm not what I used to be because I'm older or because I'm not working hard enough. And what the book said to me was, it's not about work. If it was just about working hard enough, you'd be everything you used to be. Uh, yeah. it, you've got to work differently. And I, I will say that very compellingly for me, I, I feel as though the book let me off the hook a bit. Um, so from, from my writing, it's not about, you know, how fast can I be? The pivot for me was really like, how much can I enjoy this? Yeah. Versus how much can I suffer? Yeah. And that's really important. I think, yeah, that's absolutely important. Um, and the fact that you're enjoying it 
also bestows a lot more benefits. So if you're enjoying it, you're no, you're you're in a better place, sort of neurologically. You know, you're you know, it's easier for you to go from a, a sympathetic state where you're kind of heightened to a parasympathetic state where you're relaxed. So your your body and your life becomes back in balance. Um, and and you know, the body interprets stress as stress, whether that's marriage stress, work stress, you know, um, life stress, or a training stress. And as we get older, we can only, well, not older, but it, it, more as we get older, you can only keep layering on these bands of stress so much until your body kind of goes enough. And so that point, your point about enjoying it, if you're enjoying it, things have come back into balance. You're rested enough to train. You're ready for that, that next training dose. So, you know, the it, things are probably in better balance. And the problem I was seeing with a lot of my clients and guys my age and your age, you're a bit younger than me. Um, is that they, it wasn't in balance. You know, they were, you know, they were trying, trying to make this big event, a marmot, a tap or some huge event, and things were going a bit south. And so they just doubled down on training harder and you know, they didn't have quite as much time as they wanted. So just train harder again. And, and things were flattening off. They, you know, uh, um, performance was flattening off. They weren't feeling great. They were getting bugs and viruses. They were getting injuries. It's like, you know, you're a very intelligent person. Why can you not see that this isn't working <laughs> and, right. and, and why, when I tell you why it isn't working, will you not listen to me? Uh, <laughs> do I have to write this in a book for you to listen to me? Okay. I'll, <laughs> fine. I'll write it down for you. And then they kind of believe it because there's lots of other people's names as well as mine. And that's fine. But I kept seeing it over and over, John. It's like, it's, you know, um, and you know, there's something about that sort of syndrome where we just just keep doubling down on the same mistake and think that the outcome will change. And, uh, you know, it, it yeah, doesn't. I can, I can definitely relate to, uh, you know, the, my default mode being, well, I'm, the answer must be to work harder. Yeah. We, we all know this sort of silly work smarter, not harder thing. Yeah. Uh, the problem with working smarter is that it's harder. <laughs> yeah. Um, so to me, mid midlife cyclist is it worked on two compelling levels. First, you knit together this group of doctors and physios and specialists you're surrounded with in your cycle fit work, and you you synthesize their information in a digestible way, which I appreciated. But second, and maybe more importantly, you put yourself forward as one of us, right? You were not the book isn't written from the mountaintop. Um, it's written from down here in the valley with the rest of us, where you're, uh, you yourself are not a world-class athlete, uh, no. but you're just trying to find your way forward, not just on the bike, but as an athlete generally. How, how conscious were you of yourself as a character in the book and how much of this is quite literally just sharing your personal quest to be better on the bike or in your life? Yeah, yes, it's a good good point. I, it was a, it was a point of contention when I was writing the book about how much of that stuff I should put in, and um, um, and there was a, there was a theory that all that should come out and that it should go back to dry factual text um, about you know the, effectively make it into a self help roadmap if you like, and only because. That's kind of how most sports or most 
books are written, I guess, like that, where, you know, it's a how-to book. And so everyone knows that format. Um, but because this was my first book for a, a major publisher, you know, I didn't know how much I could affect that myself. So the first draft went, went came back and, you know, the first, and it, and, and it, you know, some suggestions had been made. And, um, and then I sort of thought I kind of left, lived with it for a week or so. I thought, well, I don't know. I, I, I'd like some of that personal stuff to go back, not to make it, I mean, I don't come out of any of these things very well, as you, you know, I, it's not like I'm there winning races and triumphing around the world. I'm, you know, I'm struggling, you know, so, and I thought, well, it, it's important to go in there. And so I put it all back in there and rewrote some other stuff and actually put some extra stuff in and took it back to the editor, my editor, and said, look, I think this, this is important, this stuff. I'd like it to go back in. And in, in, in his defence, he went, yeah, okay, fine. That's what you want. It can go back in. But And then, at that point, then we dropped all the graphs out of the book and um, we dropped everything. It became, it became much more of a, a book, you know, that it is, um, which is not a training book, not a training manual, not a how-to book. It's just a, a story of characters in it, and I'm one of them, and the other people in there who you've been talking about, you know, are other characters in the book, you know, and that's how I like how I like to think of them and myself is that we just kind of we move in and out the book as we're needed to and and everybody and funnily enough the people some of the people who are most eminent in the book actually end up as case studies in the back of the book, mm. um, and you know that was lovely because. <laughs> You know, these ferociously intelligent, experienced people working at the highest level. Oh, look, they've made these mistakes and this has happened to them and this is how they recovered from it. So, you know, it, it, we're all very fallible and we're all very, do you know what I mean? It, and, and, that, and, that, and, I, and that's why I think they're, as well as being experts and, and unbelievably insightful, they're also very fallible and very human in a way. Well, I think this is all of a piece. We were talking about, you know, your idea to as chefs who share their recipes, so to speak. Um, yeah. It's and 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 then also the the example of the pro, you know, maybe a world champion or a tour stage winner sitting next to somebody who doesn't know who they are just chatting. Um it, it it's all kind of of a piece uh where we're not being lectured to from on high. Nobody likes that. You know, nobody likes to go to a doctor and have them say, well, you've got to sleep more and eat better and whatever. Like, you can't just lecture at me. You've got to be, you've got to share your story. Like, I have to know why I should care what you think. Yeah. And to know that, you know, you are do going through, I know, you know, you and I've known each other a fair um, uh, amount of time. I, I know you went through, uh, a real ordeal with a back injury you suffered being hit by a car. Um, and so just knowing that you've been through all of these things makes me much, much more likely to listen to what you have to say. I personally, I find you very charming, but that's beside the point. Um, yeah, so, I, 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 sorry, sorry, John. No, no, go ahead. Yeah, I didn't get hit by a car, but I fell off my bike and, um, sorry. I, no, 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 it's fine. And I did hurt my back and it, and, uh, um, and, um, you know, for one reason or another, it, it took many, many years to get, to get to a point where it was, yeah, um, 
where I could actually even think about riding a bike in. So it was many years, so probably six, seven years and sur- you know, two surgeries and then and a, a, fi- and a, a, a final very big spine fusion surgery. Um, and, you know, so, it, yeah, that was, a, that was in itself quite, that was quite a long process. Um, and, you know, at the time, I, you know, it was one of those, I could, we could fix everybody else who came through with injuries, but somehow we couldn't find a way to fix me. It's like, it was profoundly frustrating for Jules, you know, because he, you know, his, his, bless him, and you know Jules very well, he's very nuts and bolts. You know, if he can just give me enough bike fits, um, enough hours, <laughs> right. you know, it, seriously, bless him. He, you know, I would, I would walk in the morning sometimes because I was no longer riding a bike. I'd come in and, He'd have my kit laid out on the jig and the jig all set up. And it's like, we've got a couple of hours. Someone's cancelled. Um, let's, let's do it. Come on, let's get back on. The, and so I said, so, fuck, I went again? Okay, so we'll do it, you know. And, and it, you know, obviously it wouldn't work. You know, it's the, the, the injury was too bad. And, it was, and the first surgery had failed and it, was, and it was not working. But, you know, so there was a sense in which, you know, I, I had totally given up ever riding again, ever. And, but he hadn't. So, you know, he had to keep testing himself one more time can we find a solution to this you know at, you know we really can't Jules you know it's seriously you know stop 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 trying at the moment um yeah that, that went on for years and years and years until the final surgery when the you know the so the spine was fused completely from a 360 degrees and you know it's it's not magic there's you know it's not pain-free and it's not without issues but it, it's a lot better than it was so yeah uh, but a, a long answer to your point is, yeah, it's, I, I suppose some of that kind of, some of that, um, uh, experience of bringing yourself out of that is in the, is in the book, I guess. Yeah. And, and probably the years of frust- that, that all must increase your ability to empathize with clients who are just not un- able to understand why they can't move forward. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that's what I'm more interested in now. When I say I don't really want to work with pro athletes, I'm, you know, I'm probably better with people. I, I'm, I'm interested and drawn to people who are really struggling. Um, and, you know, I was, I didn't realize it at the time. Actually, I probably did, but I was profoundly depressed for a lot of that time. Uh, I wasn't grumpy, John, with you. That's just how I was. Uh, you know, and, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, I you know, I, I, it was in, in not only the fact that I couldn't do what I love to do, but um, I, you know, it was, I was in, I was in a lot of pain and taking a lot of pain control every day just to try and get through the day. For you know, so it, it, you know, it took its mental toll, and it, and on the on the on the output of that is, I do seem to be drawn to and like working with people who are in that position and. Not because I'm a sadist, but because it, I'm interested in moving them forward a bit, and 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 maybe they can they can sense that um, I'm you know I might be able to help them get a perspective here. Yeah. Uh, so I'm I'm always you know when some people write to me or email me or clients come in, you know those are the clients I'm drawn to, um, not somebody who's you know. A, a third of my age and has got an FTP, um, you know, to the moon and back. It, it's, you know, it's great. I, I wish it was me, but it's not me. Uh, so I don't, you know, 
they yeah. look at it they look at this old bloke and think really do i do i need need to go through this process with you whereas <laughs> do you know what i mean it, i whereas, do yeah really what you, you're someone's dad why are you here um <laughs> whereas if it's somebody who's really injured profoundly injured and it's having a profound issue on their on the way they feel about themselves and their life and their job and everything else you know i'm i'm kind of in their corner I feel that. So uh, this uh, sort of dovetails really nicely with my next uh, question, which is it strikes me that sort of beyond the physical vagaries of aging, like, you know, we all get less flexible, just as an obvious example. One of the bigger challenges, especially for athletic people, is the neurosis that springs from not knowing what is a real health problem versus what is just age appropriate performance. How how would you characterize the neurosis of the aging bike rider, and how do you sort of address that? You mean like the worried well, like the hypochondriac? Yeah. Mm. I do. Well, you know, they. I, I said to someone recently that I've how old am I? Well, I've reached the age where intermittently I'm convinced I have cancer because actually you shouldn't, and I don't. But intermittently I become convinced I have cancer because. You just shouldn't feel this way when you get out of bed in the morning. And so I think a lot of people, middle-aged people, are, there's a lot of health and performance-related neuroses that maybe aren't, they just are where they are. There's nothing wrong with them. They just are where they are. Maybe they, maybe they just need a bike fit and uh, to back off on their training a little bit. But there's a, that psychological component, that self-doubt, that uh, there's a little bit like a kernel of a loss of hope. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and I guess the, 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 the next book, the one I'm working on now, I mean, really speaks to this, um, this sort of this psychological mental component of us and where our kind of body bag, brain bag stops and the bike begins and why it's so profoundly important for us. And, why it takes us to great places and then takes us to places maybe we shouldn't be anymore. The next book is, you know, is about that. I think well, you know, it is. Um, and I, I guess when, if you, if you're 45, 55, 65, and I'm nearer the last and you're bang in the middle, I'm definitely of the opinion you should presume the best. I'm definitely the opinion that if you get these big things, right, if you eat pretty well and you get the amount of sleep that you need, and that's kind of personal to everybody, but we've all got an idea of what we need. Um, and if you count that over a week rather than a night, okay, you had six hours last night, it wasn't enough, but count it over the week. Did you get your 52 and two and a half hours that you know you need? If that's happening and you're eating pretty well and you're staying active and and that's keeping you fit and well. Um, and you're in a good place with the people around you, you know, who you work with and, you know, your family and friends. I think pretty much it's all, it's all okay. You know, I, I honestly, I'm of that opinion. And I, I wouldn't invite problems. I just wouldn't invite problems. I would always assume everything is okay. And, and the great thing about being active and fit, and I know you are, John, I know you run as well as cycling, is, is that... You, you you know you pick up on this stuff first. You know you pick up on it before anybody else. If somebody's 
your age and they've let everything go and they're no longer active and they don't care anymore. They don't know that they don't care anymore, but actually they don't care anymore. Otherwise, they're going to pick up on stuff really slowly, you know, whereas, you know, you, you ride your bike, you run, you know, I'm always seeing pictures of you in the woods and around lakes. And it's like, my God, this man, you know, that you're, this goodness is going in by osmosis unless those are stage sets somewhere. But, you know, (laughs) they're they're not, you know, so there's all that's going in. That's good stuff. That's good stuff. And I don't care how you got to that lake that you photographed, whether you walked or ran or rode your bike, it doesn't matter how you, and that's where I think that's the midlife bit. It doesn't matter how you got there. You got there. And I think that's, that's good. And that, you know, so I, you know, I know this is, you're not asking about yourself, but, you know, there's no worry there because all the fundamentals are absolutely right. You're sleeping well, you're eating well, you're getting enough activity and exercise, you're immersing yourself in good spaces, you know, and then taking lovely pictures of them. You know, it's good. Do you know what I mean? I, I I, I would never look for problems there. Until, no, I, 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 until until one came up. Uh, I think it, I think that's right. I think that's right. And and that was definitely one of my takeaways from Midlife Cyclist was, um, okay, I'm 52 and I don't feel strength and and I don't feel the capability that I felt 20 years ago. Um, but uh, simultaneously, I am we are among the first generation of midlife athletes, and. And actually what we have is, is singular in human history. Um, and it's not a thing to be worried about. It's a thing to, you know, to be used and, 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 um, enhanced in whatever ways we can. Yeah. And and I think that's actually both the celebration, um, um, but the cognizance that we're the first generation to exercise hard into middle-aged and beyond um, being cognizant of that and then is, is actually also quite empowering because it's also humbling you know no other yeah. generation before us and there's been 250,000 generations of biped no generation has sought the kind of performance that we want at our age uh, and there's and there's nothing there's no genetic imperative keeping us alive so genetically we're the same genome as we were you know couple hundred thousand years ago and so genetically we're kind of there's a lot of there's a lot of there's a lot of evolutions protecting us to the age of 30 so we can breed and then bring up that offspring but post i mean you know no nature is crushingly indifferent as to whether we survive past 30 or not that's okay because we are surviving past 30 and then you know that we can use the knowledge that that, you know this is all a grand experiment both to be humbling and empowering. And the book is meant to be humbling and empowering. It's meant to be, okay, oh shit, this is where we are. Where the first, you know, my parents yeah. didn't, didn't exercise, didn't want to exercise post 25 at the level I want to post 62, you know. Um, right. And, and that's one generation. Yeah. Yeah, uh, it's amazing. It, it is totally amazing. It's, it's mind-blowing, frankly. And it's and it's it's a ratchet, John. It won't go back. We're going to bequeath it to our kids. You know, do you know what I mean? It's 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 like a, it's just clicked round, in a lovely yeah. way. Um, and it's all good. The longitudinal studies, I'm sure, will come back and say, 
Okay, everybody, mostly thumbs up. It seems like it's all pretty good. A couple of people are outliers and probably need to get a bit of help or something, but generally it's all good. Um, But we don't have those longitudinal studies yet. They're not there yet. Um, But I'm going to presume it's all good, John. Um, I like it. But I, yeah, seriously, it's all good. You know, you, you know, if you're achieving, you know, if you're going out there and exercising and being active and, you know, it's good. I mean, I, you know, I don't choose to exercise absolutely crank the amplifier to 11 out of 10 at the age, my age. It right. doesn't feel right. quite right. You know, that's a choice yeah. thing. I'm not saying anything will come if I did. But I just, you know, I don't crank it to 11. Uh, like I did when I was a racer. Doesn't feel, doesn't no. feel. No, and that's one of, I mean, I think that's literally something that I took from Midlife Cyclist. Uh, I was trying to keep it on 11 all the time. And then I looked <laughs> at all the sort of variables there and what was going on and what I could realistically achieve. And I thought, you know what, my, this is, a, there's a larger picture here than a, than an FTP or whatever. There's a much larger picture. There's a whole picture. And the picture takes in the scenery and it takes in how I am to the people around me. It's not just riding the bike. It's not just suffering for some sort of catharsis. It's this whole picture. How does the whole picture look? Um, and it's, yeah. I felt, I, I don't know if you intended this, but I felt the book sort of gave me permission to change my focus a little bit. Yeah, I think I... I, I... I definitely wanted you to. Look, I definitely wanted everyone, including me, to let go of the uh, you know to let go of this kind of guilt thing about I'm I'm not cranking to eleven all the time anymore. And in fact, actually, it's better if we don't. Um, but I also say you know that if you're if you're sensible about the way you exercise and you mix it up, bit of bit of weights and resilient you know resistance training and other stuff. You know, if you if there's a day there's, there's a day you go out and you just for whatever reason you're just absolutely brimming with energy, then go for it. It's fine. It's like your body your body's telling you this is the this is the hour, my friend. You right. know, have it. And, yeah, and, and the you know, and it's like the I think I quote from the King Lear in the book. It's like you know, we really need to be wise before we get old. You know, I can't remember the exact quote, but that's right. So we, you know, one of the great things about being my age and your age is that it's like. You know, this, there's some wisdom that goes there. So if you get up in the morning and you get on your bike or you run or you walk, it's like, geez, I feel absolutely marvellous today. There's your moment. Have that moment. Yeah. Enjoy that. Really, enjoy that moment. Exploit it. Go as hard as you know. Do whatever you want. Your body's telling you, is giving you green lights. That, I think that's great. Yeah, um, I think that's all I ever threw my leg over a bike for in the first place. So Yeah, exactly. exactly. If it's there, Yeah. All right, let's let's take a quick break so that our sponsors can have their word and we'll come back uh, with more in just a second. Okay, we're going to count three, two, one back in. The Pace Line is brought to you in part by Shimano North America and their new 105 12-speed mechanical group set. Over the last few seasons, the refined ergonomics and technology of their Dura-Ace and Altegra groups have arrived at the affordable 105 level. 12 speeds smooth out Shimano's already category-leading shifting technology, and the new 105 is reliable, simple to use, and easy to maintain. 
available with either an 1134T or 1136T cassette paired with a 5034T or 5236T chainring setup, riders can climb more comfortably with an efficient cadence and still have big enough gears to prevent spinning out mid-descent or when sprinting on the flats. All right, we're back. Um, so one of the cool things about what you do is that you work with normal people, uh, uh, define that however you like, but also with world-class athletes. How would you say those two constituencies are different psychologically and how does it inform their approach to, to riding a bike? Yeah, you, you need to do a separate podcast with Jules, don't you? Really? This is, you're, you're speaking to his constituency. Uh, I guess I've well, this is a bit. It's a bit as you were saying about you know younger people. I, okay, M- maybe I should have asked my real question, which is: I suspect that everyone, world class athlete or otherwise, has these neuroses. They they have self doubt that's holding them back. They have something that's occupying their mind. So for a young pro, it might be: ah, uh, I doubt that my position is correct. I'm not getting enough power. And they might think that because they compare their power numbers to someone else on the team. Um, Whereas a a normal person might say, you know, I, I can't keep up with my friends on, on our group ride. Um, And there must be something, some way for you to help me, but it's, it's mainly in their head. Yeah. And, and and this is something Jules and I used to talk about when we would when we would go and fit a team or a pro athlete. You know, we our mindset here is not we're not that we're stamping on them our process. No, so we're not going in there with our clipboards and our checklist and saying, "Okay, we're now going to cycle fit you." So get ready to be cycle fitted. It it's, <laughs> it really it really it, it's not. Um, yeah. It's like it's go in and say, you know, what what are the things, what are the things here that are bothering you, that we can try and lift off your shoulders. Where, where's where's the doubt here? Right. I mean, I Jules, we don't express it that way, and Jules certainly doesn't express it that way. But it's exactly what he's thinking. What Jules is thinking is, I need to lift this doubt off you, so you don't have this anymore. And you can move forward without this doubt and close it off, close that loop. And he doesn't say it like that. Or maybe he does sometimes. It depends how well he knows the person. Some of these guys he's been with and girls he's been with for years. But that's what he's thinking. That's what we, that's what we would discuss before and after the sessions. We need to lift this, these, this doubt off these, off these people in a mm. way where they think that this has been, either we are, they're assured that these issues have been closed off. And for a pro cyclist, where their body is their living, you're absolutely right. If you do not close these things off, they just keep growing. And then they, they, they keep experimenting. And it's like that famous clip of Eddie Merckx when he's adjusting his bike on the way to the start of the 1976 Tour de France. You know, the man gets off the bike six times before the start line, adjusting his bike and lowering his saddle and lifting his saddle. It's like, my God, this is not the moment to be doing this. And this is just yeah. what you're saying. It's just in doubt. And it's right. just and it's just exploding in this echo chamber, you know, on the way to the start line of the 
uh, you know, of the of the Paru Bay. It's, um, it's the marvelous film if you've seen it. Um, Sunday in Hell. Um, Sunday in and, Hell, yeah, exactly right. And you know, and Saka, it's and you that doesn't happen so much anymore. But you know, it happens enough where you just need to lift this away. Give that problem to me, and um, and I'll solve it, and then you can you can be free of it. So on some lo- so you're working, so uh, there's a nuts and bolts to what you do, right? Which is physiological or yeah. biomechanics. You're looking at a rider and you're saying, well, position is this, back isn't straight, or, you know, it's over pronation of this foot, or it's, there are all of these pieces, yes? And so you're solving this physical puzzle, but at the same time, you're having to listen to them explain their experience of riding and what it is that creates that doubt for them. Is that right? Yeah. So you, yeah, you, <clears throat> yes, exactly right. So you're listening to what they're saying and then you're, um, they're articulating the issue as they see it, but then you're also n- needing to be slightly more triangulating off what their body's saying. So they're saying one thing and then you're looking and the body's actually saying something else. So you're using technology there to either affirm um, or, crystallize what's going on for them they're you know they're talking about something that's happening to one foot or one knee or one layer whatever and you're listening and you're writing it down and they're talking about it and how it feels and then when they you know they're in a big race and what happens at the end of that race and how it makes them feel and then but you're also you we're also using the technology and saying okay so this is what you're saying but this is what your body's saying um and then and then explaining that to them and 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 then explaining the intervention you want to make to try and improve things. And that's where Jules is really good. That's where he's, you know, the, the way he delivers it, the way he analyzes it, and the way, the, the, and the way he gets them to commit to it is, is, is good. You know, he's very, very good at that um, mm. because, um, because you, they, need, they need to have the right combination of, I believe this person, this person is without doubt, but they also need to be, but this person isn't either with, with arrogance. He's not saying any of this arrogantly. There's no arrogance here, but he is making a good case for what he's saying. Um, and, you know, these guys, are, these guys and girls have got teams of people around them all the time telling them stuff. So right. you just, you know, the way you say it and the way you do it is really, really crucial. And Jules does it in a very impressive way. And I do it and say it in a less impressive way. Um, <laughs> no, no, you know, it's true absolutely true um and you know so and half of that is not half you know um he you know a lot of it is in the way that he just stands there and in a very simple way articulates what's what he wants what he's seeing and what he wants to do and he uses a lot he uses very few words as you know well i was gonna say this is what this is what i know you and i are are talkers we'll put all the words we can around an idea um And Jules will is he's much more economical in his words. That's right. John, it works in that environment. I believe it. I believe it. I think, you know, uh, at a certain level, the more words you use, the less credible you are. Right. Yeah. He's a shit at podcasting, but he's brilliant at bike fitting. Right. There's a reason you're on the show. Exactly. Um, So. So let's um, let's just uh, I just want to sort of talk about how. Um, midlife cyclist was received overall. Were you happy with it? Did it get? Did it get um, more? I, I, my assumption is that it got more traction in the UK, just 
I don't know, like geographically, that's where you are and cycle fit has a bit more, uh, cachet, uh, or, or did you have a Beatles coming to America moment where, uh, it blew up here? It, it, it took off. It started when it first came out, it came out at a bad time. Um, and so it kind of went out there and, um, it, 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 it wasn't expected to do very well at all. And then for one reason or another, it just caught. And, um, mm. and uh, by, I think by word of mouth, I don't know. And then it sort of, it just kind of grew and grew and grew. And the book's never really gone away. It's, it's bizarre. And then all of a sudden it was, it was number one cycling book in, the, in America a couple of weeks ago. And then it was number one audio book on the Amazon chart uh, a few weeks ago. And it's bizarre. So it's just, it's weird how it just keeps getting these kind of little injections of life. And it's nothing to do with me, nothing to do with what I'm doing. Um, It just keeps, it sort of keeps popping up. And then, and uh, I don't track it, but my wife does. And then she'll just send me a little text saying, oh my God, your book's number one audio book in the States. My God, that's amazing. Uh, (laughs) And there's no, there's no rhyme or reason to it, John. I mean, it's bizarre. But Sorry. As a writer myself, I can tell you that, uh, and, and this will be a post on the cycling independent. Sometimes we, 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 our posts will blow up for reasons we don't understand at all. And others that we think are really compelling will just fly right under the radar. And the internet is a capricious, uh, a capricious friend. It's true. It's true. But broadly, I was very pleased and touched with how the book was received because as a writer yourself, you know, you write in a vacuum, don't you? You write, yeah. you know, you're, you know, you're right in the haunted halls of your own mind and imagination, and you just kind of float it out there, and it's a, va- it's necessarily a vacuum. So how it lands and how people feel it and see it is, is, you know, is, is um, interesting, isn't it? You know, uh, it is. It is. I find that often other people, what moved other people was not what I thought would move them. Um, and that's just what it is. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So you went through the process of writing this book, and we we did speak about it. I know it was a grueling, uh, and it was sort of, uh, as your first big publisher book, I know there was a lot. We, we talked a, touched on it a little earlier, and we certainly talked about it in the last interview what it was like to sort of say, no, I want to have my personal viewpoint in the book. So I know it was a real, and there were days where you were writing thousands and thousands of words a day and going through edits, etc. Um, I know you're working on a new book. I kn- there's probably a moment where you're like, I'm never doing that process again. But then very quickly, you're like, but I've got all of these other ideas that I want to get to. So this, uh, we talked about it just a few minutes ago, but I wanted to come back and say, what is the new book about? Um, what, when can we expect to see it? Well, you can expect to see it when I write it, John. Um, <laughs> so I, hopefully it won't be too long. Um, the, my publisher is pushing me quite hard because this book has been you know, very successful for them. So that's understandable. They want book number two. Um, but I also have a, a job and a family. And so you, the, these things have to fit in. But yes. with this book, um, this, this book, which I'm working on now, um, it, I think I'm... I I think I've I hopefully I've taken the 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 reception this book's had, and I've allowed myself to be a bit more full throated in this book. Not not be afraid to 
to just speak as I find and speak as I feel. And, you know, I don't come out of this book very well. Again, it's good. You know, it's uh, much as you wouldn't if you wrote a, you know, it, it, you know, it's so it, in that sense, it's good. And it's talking to different people, interviewing people about, you know, what's happened to them when they, why they started to cycle and, and the effect it had on them psychologically and their levels of happiness and contentment. And then, you know, conversely, when things went wrong and suddenly the, the bicycle wasn't anymore a, a, an instrument of liberation and social and psychological freedom, but something else, how that felt. Um, so, you know, some of those people I'm talking to are very well-known cyclists and some of them are people you've never even ever heard of. And so, the you know, the book is a different set of characters to the ones that are in the midlife cyclist. A couple of those, couple of those people pop up, actually, uh, which is lovely. Um, but it much more is taking that chapter eight, the mindful cyclist, and thinking about why the hell is it we do this? And... And and I I remember I I once tried to ride up Haleak, Haleakala, which is a volcano in Maui. I was staying in Maui at the time, and I just rode up Haleakala because I I got up at five in the morning and rode up Haleakala, and I I wrote about this quite recently. And um, it's I can't remember how high it's. You go from sea level and you go all the way to the top of the volcano, which is at minus you know it's so cold, four thousand meters or I can't remember more. And Jonathan Vorters held the record at one, as when I wrote it, he held the record at two hours 50 or something. That tells you all you need to know. He did it in two hours 50 as a professional. And about two thirds of the way up, I shouldn't, I realised I should not have been on that mountainside. I had no water left, no food left, nowhere to buy anything or get anything. And, I, and it was getting colder and colder and colder and higher and higher and higher. And yet I couldn't turn back. And by the time I got to the top, I was in a lot of trouble. And I couldn't feel my hands and I couldn't even feel my, my hands were so blockish that I couldn't even put my jacket on and I was in a complete mess. And I said, like, what the hell was I doing, John? Why did I do that? Uh, I'm not stupid. But in that moment, I was stupid. And then I had right. to get myself down. And it's just, what is going on? What's going on there in my head, in other people's heads where they don't know when to stop, when to change, when to turn back. Um, intelligent people, you know, there's something about this and there's something about us. And this, this book is about that. Not only that, but that's part of what it's about. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. There is this faith that there is something out there uh, against all evidence, right? You know, you should turn back. You should turn back. But yet you have this belief this faith that there's something worth pushing on for it's ludicrous yeah but you're being too benevolent it wasn't faith it's 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 something much more mindless and than that isn't it you know there, i there was it wasn't like i wanted to look at the view from the top of haleakala uh it it wasn't like i there was a I, there wasn't a coffee shop there sure. you know, there was no there was no promised land at the top john it was just that it was stubbornness and I was just, it was that not allowing yourself to, yeah. to fail, you know, at something that meant nothing. <laughs> right. Know, you know, it, it's, something, it's something else, isn't it? And it's not just in me. 
it's but it is in me but it's not just in me um yeah. and and uh, you know it could have been destructive and dangerous and you know would i do it at 62 at the point when i did it then i was mid to late 30s but would i do it at 62 one would hope not one would hope <laughs> um but it's not just about that but that's it's an examination of that i think yeah you know and and um yeah in no way do i come out of this very well and and nor do other people in the book come out but it in fact, we all come out of it well because you have to forgive yourself, you know, that some of this stuff we don't have as much control over as we think we have. This is the thing, you know. One, yeah. one, one thinks we've got all this control, but sometimes we haven't. Well, I, at root, we believe we're, we are rational animals, and that is the fundamental lie of humanity, isn't it? I missed that, John. You kind of went a bit robotic voice there for a moment. Oh, I was just saying the you know we all believe we are rational actors, and yeah, in right. reality we are yeah. not. This is sort of the central lie of humanity. It's why yeah. we still have wars, and we do we hurl ourselves up mountains. We are irrational, and yeah, and you you think that wisdom will replace you hope you hope that wisdom will replace some of that as you get older, but maybe not. I know. I know. That's right. That's I right. think it's I think it's fascinating to hear you say that, you know, you're being more full throated in this book while simultaneously being more vulnerable. You know, yeah, you've got to admit your mistakes. You have to put yourself forward as an example of the sorts of uh, fear, doubt and insecurities that other people have that makes you compelling to listen to. While at the same time having the faith in your ideas that, like, no, this is worth saying. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I do think. I do think there's yes. I'm going to answer yes to that because, you know, as a young, when you're younger, you you know you. The thing is, I should you shouldn't speak for other people, but you know, as a younger person, and you might, this might be familiar to you. You know, you march forward. You know, you just keep marching forward. You know, and it's one step in front of the other. And you just keep moving forward and. And I think you just get to that age, and I'm certainly that age where I, I enjoy the motion of moving forwards, but I'm a bit more reflective now on the direction. You know, it's like it's, you know what I mean? Yes. I'm much happier. I'm much happier to kind of go. Actually, that's not a great idea over there. I'm gonna, you know, I, I'm more circumspect, and you know, it's just taken me a long time to get to that point, uh, longer than it should, and longer than it probably takes other people. So in that sense, I'm being honest about it. And, yeah. Uh, why did it take? Why has it taken me that long to, to you know, to to deal with that sort of self doubt and you know, wisdom of direction? And I've been you know talking to other people about it. It's really you've only got to you've only got to kind of open. It's bizarre. You've only got to open the door slightly, you know, and, and it kind of go. I, this is the, I kind of want to talk about this. And then some people I've spoken to who kind of gone the doors has gone. That, well, that isn't getting spoken about. Other people, they just <laughs> other people, they just kick the door open. It's like shit. I never knew that about you. And then they just tell you. And it's like, yeah. oh my God, you started riding a bike because you know you were bullied at school. My God, who would have known that? You know, yeah. uh, whatever it was, whatever you know, it's it's, it's bizarre. You know. Um, well, I think you have a long career in this business. 
uh, I, I have been in it a while, and it's always remarkable, remarkable to me how much of life the bike seems to take in. Yeah, I totally agree. I absolutely, and I've always thought that. I've always thought that it's a, it's, it's essentially it's a benign philosophical instrument. Frankly, yeah, uh, yeah. I've always thought that, and that's what I guess that's what I'm exploring, John. I knew you would understand that. <laughs> You can count on me to be full of shit at all times. So uh, just wrapping up. I love that about you. (laughs) uh, Thank you. So uh, what what in this vast sea of fitting, riding, researching, et cetera, is really interesting you at the moment? What is what what thing what is lighting you up? Sleep. Sleep. Yeah. I'm not being I'm not being. um, What's the word? I'm not being fickle. I'm not being fanciful. I mean, I think. Yeah, I think it's something which we've all neglected to understand um, because it's, we just do it for a certain portion of the day, you know, night, 24 hour day. And we, so we, you know, we don't give it enough attention and, uh, uh, you, know, we, you know, we can only go a couple of days without it and we die. Um, and so it's essentially how we sleep, how much we sleep, when we sleep is certainly to the midlife athlete. I think it's absolutely where the gold is buried. Mm. Um, and and then working out working out your understanding yourself. Am I so, you know what's the, they call it a chronotyping? What is it? Where are you a natural person who's a, a lark and up with them up in the morning at dawn before dawn, or are you an owl? You only get up at eleven and stay up all night, and then trying to work that to make your life better. When's your most productive time? And I learned this during the book. I mean, it's like I I learned that my most productive time was between five and eight in the morning before mm. breakfast, get 1500 words done before breakfast and then breakfast with my, my wife, eight o'clock, having, having done 1500 words, I might squeeze out another 500 words in the next 10 hours, almost certainly not. But that was the golden period, five and eight in the morning. Mm. And learning that about myself after 56 years, I'm an idiot. <laughs> like, oh shit, why didn't I know that? Well, we're all an idiot. That's just I how know. it is. Of course That's we are. just how it is. Well, it has been a pleasure, as it always is, to catch up. Um, we'll have a link in the show notes to the Midlife Cyclist. Uh, Thank you, John. I actually looked beforehand to see where it could be purchased. Uh, it's sold out at Bloomsbury, so we're going to do a little research on that before the show goes up. But uh, everyone can look forward to us reviewing Phil's new book as soon as it arrives. Uh, thanks for listening to this Paceline special episode. Thank you, Phil. Thank as you, John. Always- it's uh- it's, it's always a pleasure. And I'd, I'd, again, I'd like to say that when we, the next book comes out, maybe you and I can make a date that we, we talk, we, you and I talk first about it. That would, that would seem to be something that I want to do. I'll go you one better and say, let's do it in the same geographical location. That would be fun for me. Boom. Right there. I love that. As always, you can support the show by subscribing to the cycling independent. Uh, we have, subscriptions at three five and ten dollar a month uh you can hit the tip jar if you fear commitment and you just want to kick in every now and then we love it all we need that money uh to keep doing what we do on behalf of the cycling independent i'm john lewis thanks for listening